Welcome back to another incongruent episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst into all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Indiana Jones. But who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. Today's story begins on March 25, 1952. Just four days earlier, 20,000 fans attempted to attend the very first rock and roll concert when Mr. Alan Moondog Freed presents the Moondog Coronation Ball at the 12,000-seat Cleveland Arena. And just two days after our start date, Sun Records of Memphis, Tennessee began releasing records. And just a few months earlier, our old friend Elvis Presley had just celebrated his 17th birthday. Earlier this month, it was announced that at the end of the last month, another rock and roll legend left us and ascended to the rock and roll heavens. While this legend may fall into the often overlooked category we like to focus on so much here on the show, it doesn't make him any less of a legend. In fact, I think it makes him even more so of a legend because he has this cool air of mystery floating about him. The person I'm talking about is a man by the name of Jack Lee. Jack Lee penned many great songs over his musical career, and while not all of them were big commercial successes, his songwriting and music styling has been hugely influential on many who have come after him. I know you for sure already know one of his songs he has written, but before I give it away, that is unless you already read the title of the show, let me fire up the old time machine and let's hop aboard as we set our destination to Alaska of all places and punch in the date, March 25th, 1952, and find out who this brilliant songwriting visionary, Jack Lee, really is. landing. <clears throat> Alright. Jack Nathan Lee was born March 25th, 1952, and like I said, he's got that air of mystery about him, so not much is really known about his early life. And now I'm totally just making this part up here, but my guess is that his childhood was probably pretty cold a lot of the time, and there was probably some snow involved. Also guessing here, probably on February 7th, 1964, a young 11-year-old Jack probably tuned in to see the Beatles perform on Ed Sullivan, and just like everyone else, probably decided to pick up a guitar and started doing that. And then probably after that, he had his sights set on the golden shores of California where he saw better weather and his name in lights. And actually that last bit is true because at the very young age of 15, Jack booked a one-way ticket out of town and left home and headed for the Santa Monica Pier in Los Angeles, California, which would be the place he would call home for much of the remainder of his life. And if anyone knows Jack or has any info on his early life, please reach out to me and let me know how accurate any of that guessing was. It would be pretty funny if it was mostly true. Now back to the facts. Jack arrived on the Santa Monica Pier around 1967-1968. He floated around town for a few years, uh, and then by the age of 19 began to hitchhike his way up to San Francisco. Along the way he spotted a blue T-Bird heading up the road. He stuck his thumb out hoping to catch a ride, and to his surprise the car pulled over. Inside was a girl named Constance Williams, and she agreed to give him a ride into the city. The two quickly hit it off and became fast friends. Jack then arrives in San Francisco around 1971-1972, and in 
and as he began to settle in around town, he would busk to get by, playing songs on his guitar. Studying music from Bob Dylan and the Beatles, Jack would be inspired to pen his own material. It was here where Jack would write a song that practically jumped out of him, a song that would not only change his life, but also change the world. And it was a good song, such a good song. It was so good that his now girlfriend and future wife and life partner, Constance Williams, was very supportive of it. So supportive that she sold most of her things to help him get the song recorded and put out on an acetate, which he then put out on his own made-up record label, which he called Maiden America. And a quick side note, this record has practically disappeared from the face of the earth. It's one of those holy grail records that collectors are dying to find. It is so coveted that I wonder even if it truly exists. If someone out there has it, please come forward with this. this the world needs to hear this audio. Any rate, Jack said the song was so good, even people who hated him, and there were plenty, had to admit it was a great song. No one could deny the greatness. And this song was called Hanging on the Telephone, which I'm sure many of you have heard in some shape or another. a clip from an interview of Jack describing how the song came to him. I go walk past the bookstore and I look and in the thing was the display for Bob Dylan's book and I walked in there and I sat down on my haunches and I read it, half of it, right there on the spot. And it just all came to me that, that, that there was, that the only thing that really meant anything to anything was if you wrote your own song. Right. You know, so that was a major, major revelation for me. The Illustrated Beatles. Okay. I'm probably getting the title wrong. But I'm leafing through there and I'm, I'm having no idea how to, what a song is. Because all I did, I was always a player. I was always was this thing. And I go through there and I'm, I'm noticing the patterns of how the songs were put together. I'm sort of seeing it for the, I'm seeing, looking at the lyrics, because I never looked at lyrics, I didn't care. Right. It was something that guy, the lead singer did, okay? So, I started flip, flipping through this book and it had little pictures for each song. And I get, and I'm looking and I'm starting to notice in a new way, wow, there's pattern to it. Right. They repeat things at a certain time. I'm starting to see shapes, because I see things in shapes. And I come to this song called All I've Gotta Do. One of my favorite, because I've always loved the Beatles. And I saw that, and it was a, it was a, it was a, cart it was a, a drawing of a girl with a phone wrapped around her neck. Mm -hmm. It was a, a little cartoon above the lyrics, and I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but I picked up my guitar and I started repeating the phrase hanging on the telephone. The next day, it was just like a lightning bolt, man. I hit a G chord, a chord that I'd used all my life, and I hit it, and just out I shouted, I'm in the phone booth, this one across the hall. It just came, came to me. 
And because I was paying so much attention back to the like a Rolling Stone, I, I started reasonably realizing about the concept of narrative and story. That I like, you know, Johnny Be Good, like Rolling Stone, whatever. And then I knew, oh, I've got to tell a story here. I have to tell it like I would a story. And I started spitting out these words. I just played G and E flat, which is a real unusual combination for me. And I had that melody. I'm in the phone booth. This the one. And then I started. I wanted to. I wanted to see how many times I could, how effectively I could rhyme. Right. And then once I got past the thrill of rhyming something, I started noticing the power of when you rhyme, but you also have the perfect word right. that implies a phrase or implies right. a thought. And then it started coming to me. Then I don't know, God, God thank you. I just, it just all flowed into me. It was like, I'm in the phone booth, if you don't answer, I'll just, and I had story started developing, which was I had issues with this woman's mother that I was li living with. Okay. And I started uh, uh, directing my story at that. It's, it wasn't calculated. It was more me catching up with, with the flow of the inspiration that was coming to me and me having read the Bob Dylan biography book and having sort of unconsciously studying the structure of the Beatles songs. Right. Because she also had the Blue Album and the Red Album, which up to that time was the definitive collection of the Beatles, and on the back were the lyrics. And again, I looked at those two, and, I st and that's how I figured out how to put it together. Right. But I must say that the quality of hanging on the telephone is a lot was sacrificed in time and in attention into that song. And I think it really defined, gave me such confidence and such confidence in my skill. And because before anybody gave me any validation on the song, I knew I was onto something. And also the reaction I was getting from people that had other agendas other than to give me a compliment, couldn't help but say it. And, right. and, and un, unsolicited compliments then I knew that I was on to something. So now Jack had the confidence and clear ability to write songs. His first attempt was an absolute boom shakalaka of a slam dunk. So now he would take this song and his acetate and hit the streets and busk. He would frequent the Fisherman's Wharf area of San Francisco since it had a lot of heavy foot traffic, not only giving him more opportunity to make money, but also a better opportunity to share his original works with the world. It was here at the Fisherman's Wharf where Jack would befriend another musician who would also busk in the area. This fellow musician was a guy from Buffalo named Peter Case. Peter said when he first met Jack, he immediately related to him. He was one of the few guys who were out on the scene who were writing their own songs. The very first day they met, they went out and sat in a car and Peter played him one of his own original songs which was called When You Find Out and Jack played him his newly penned Hanging on the Telephone which Peter said was fantastic and inspiring. The two then bonded over their love of music and quickly became very close friends, practically inseparable. The two began playing songs together and hanging around the North Beach area of San Francisco. It was in this area that they would get into what Case describes as a bouquet of emotions involving freedom. His words, not mine. And so it was a period of my life where like, I was really 
experiencing a little, like, you know, a whole, you know, bouquet of emotions involving, you know, freedom, but, you know, yeah. terror. Kind of singing troubadour kind of, uh, or no, no, that's kind of, you know, a cliche, okay. but it was like kind of being like a young kid living on the street, playing guitar and trying to find his way playing music. What is actually significant about this time is that this is when they also began bouncing more of their material back and forth between themselves and helping each other cultivate both of their immense passions for songwriting. Here's a short clip that Peter Case posted on Facebook and Twitter not that long ago, uh, playing a Jack Lee song from that time as a tribute. This will give you an idea of what they were doing back in the North Beach area circa 1973. It's for Jack here. One of Jack Lee's songs from back in the early 1970s. Time goes on slowly, how long will it last? At some other time I'll be living too fast. Day in and day out I stay in, don't go out For day in and day out People say I'm crazy, out of my mind People say I'm lazy, I'm wasting my time But now I'm by myself with no friends I do nothing but daydream and sleep Day in and day out I stay in, don't go out A day in and day out It's a cool clip, you should hunt it down. Back at this point in time, they were still pretty young and all the local clubs and venues were already booked full by other older established musicians. As a result, a scene of like-minded musical youth began to form. It was a collection of younger kids that were living on the streets living and breathing their music all day long. Real deal street musicians. It was in this scene that Jack and Peter would befriend a younger kid who had just freshly turned 19 and showed up in town from New Jersey. This kid was named Paul Collins, and he also sang and wrote his own songs. This stuck out to Jack and Peter, and so they took the youngster under their collective wing, and with this new addition, the two friends became three, and naturally, as a trio, a band was formed. With this new band, it was 24 hours a day, seven days a week of just playing music focused on trying to make it as a band. The band, led by Jack Lee, set out to be as epic as a band like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. They had their sights set high, and they called themselves The Nerves, with Jack leading the way on guitar and vocals, Peter Case on bass, and young Paul Collins on drums. Their music has been described as revved up, economical, and aggressive pop songs. Their songs were scrappy, catchy, and full of hooks, and harmonies. Well-crafted pop songs that were morphing into the early stirrings of the budding punk music that was quickly arriving in the mid to late 70s. Jack wanted to push the envelope with the nerves and had every intention on standing out from the flower power hippie crowd of San Francisco. To stand out, he had the idea to dress the band up in matching three-piece suits. They wanted to look sharp, but of course it made them stick out like a sore thumb. San Francisco quickly rejected this new band, but the nerves didn't care. Jack said, if you really want to rebel, then how about rebelling against your fucking peers? And that's exactly what they did. Despite their peers' rejection, this didn't slow the nerves down at all. In fact, they used their peers' rejection as fuel and by 1976 found their way into a recording studio. The band managed to secure a $2,000 loan and went into Kelly Kwan Recorders in North Beach and pressed up an independent self-release self-titled EP. 
The opening track on the record, of course, was Lee's Amazing Hanging on the Telephone. The record didn't catch on in San Francisco at all, though, but a copy managed to find its way down to Los Angeles and into the hands of a man named Greg Shaw. Greg Shaw is a man who certainly deserves his own episode, and one day certainly will have one. But the short story is, is that he ran a highly influential and well-respected independent rock and roll record label called Bomp Records out of Los Angeles. Upon hearing the Nerves record, Greg called up the band and agreed to distribute the record through his label. And this sign of glowing support is all it took for the Nerves to pack their bags and relocate down to Los Angeles. The band arrived in LA on New Year's Day 1977. Impeccable timing for them as the punk scene in LA was just kicking off. If you need a refresher, go check out episode 2 of our show, despite the bad editing, which I swear I will fix one of these days. It'll give you some insight into how all this was playing out. Anyway, the band quickly found themselves in their three-piece suits, booking shows around town, and even some shows with the local punk bands that were starting to sprout up around the area. The nerves also stuck out like a sore thumb here, but it turns out LA was more welcoming of sore thumbs. Peter Kay said, The punk scene in Los Angeles was accepting of anyone who's willing to give the punk thing a shot, no matter their interpretation of it. All were welcome. So in turn, the Nerves would find themselves playing along the side of bands like the Weirdos, the Zeros, the Germs, the Dills, just to name a few. In places such as the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, the Mask, the Hollywood Punk Palace, and the Orpheum Theater. Cliff Roman of the Weirdos, in fact, once said that the Weirdos' very first show, which took place on April 2nd, 1977, was headlined by the Nerves. The Weirdos' second show, which was also set up by the Nerves, on April 16th, 1977, Roman also said was quote-unquote the show that kick-started the LA punk rock scene. So there is that. After kicking off the LA punk scene, Jack and the band decided they had more work to do and set out on a grander adventure. Without the help of an agent or any type of management or label support, the Nerves would then book an entire U.S. tour where they would play across the country playing with bands like the Ramones, Devo, Paraubu, and Mink Deville. However, as quickly as the band took over the United States, even faster would they dissolve. After returning back to L.A., the band quickly fizzled out and all three members decided it would be best to go their own separate ways. While the tour was somewhat a success in terms of who they played with, commercially the band was considered a failure, and they weren't catching on and gaining as big of an audience as they originally had hoped. Paul Collins says he thinks what happened with the Nerves was that they took it as far as three people could possibly take a project, expending an enormous amount of energy and time, and because of that it just imploded from lack of interest, like a plant dying from a lack of water. Peter Case would switch to guitar and lead vocals and go on to start his own band called The Plimsolls, whose debut album was an instant classic and found their biggest success in the 80s with their single titled A Million Miles Away, which was most notably featured on the soundtrack for the movie Valley Girl starring Nicolas Cage. Paul Collins would also switch to guitar and vocals and go on to start his own music career by starting his own band called The Beat, which is the reason why the English beat had to add the English modifier to their name. With the beat, things culminated for Paul when he found himself playing his smash hit single titled Rock and Roll Girl on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. They both would also in later years go on to play in very active and moderately successful solo careers uh, since they were songwriting lifers and all. 
Jack Lee, on the other hand, would continue to write and play music by himself and took the solo artist route, but he found himself struggling to find his own success. Things were looking pretty grim for Lee as he found himself near the end of his rope. That is until his telephone rang. Jack remembers it vividly, he says. It was a Friday. They were going to cut off his power and phone line at 6 o'clock. When he answered the phone, strangely enough, it was Debbie Harry on the other end asking if her band Blondie could cover his song hanging on the telephone. As it turns out, Jack's friend Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who happened to be friends with Blondie and head of the band's fan club, who also would go on to start his own group called The Gun Club, managed to get a copy of the song on cassette and into the hands of Blondie. As Debbie Harry explains, the band were playing it in the back of a taxi cab while on tour in Tokyo, and the taxi cab driver started tapping his hands on the steering wheel. When they came back to the US, they found that the nerves weren't together anymore, and they said, gee, we should record this song. And that was that. Jack gave the band his blessing, and also collected royalties from the song as well, as another song that he had written titled, Will Anything Happen? Both songs would go on to be featured on Blondie's magnum opus album titled, Parallel Lines. Blondie's version of the hanging on the telephone begins with the sound effect of a telephone ringing, true to the original. Blondie's version of hanging on the telephone employs a double backbeat rhythm in its drubbing pattern, which became very influential in popular music. This percussion style also appeared on other power pop singles from the period, like the Romantics 1978 Tell It To Carry, just for an example. This Blondie connection would be the pinnacle of commercial success for Lee, although he did have a few others like with the song called You Are My Lover, released by the one and only Susie Quattro, and maybe my personal favorite song of his called Come Back and Stay, being a song that would be covered by and launch the career of singer Paul Young. Well, that's about as far as Jack's music adventure goes in terms of financial success. He continued to play music and write songs as an independent artist, even releasing a great first solo album humorously titled Jack Lee's Greatest Hits Volume 1 on his very own Made in America label. He would continue to stay true to himself and his music until the day he died on May 26, 2023 at the age of 71. And while not much came in terms of rock star success for Jack, he did one better and gained cult legend status with his vision of the nerves and his songwriting leaving a huge impressionable mark on the rock and roll planet. His contributions as a songwriter, vocalist, and guitarist left a genre-defining mark on the punk and power-pop genres. The Nerve's energetic, raw, and stripped-down sound would go on to be highly influential to many artists who would come after them. Lee's songwriting talent and his compositions displayed a distinctive blend of catchy melodies, insightful lyrics, and a sense of urgency that resonated with many different types of audiences. Lee's ability to craft infectious hooks and deliver emotionally charged performances are timeless, and his work with the Nerves helped pave the way for the burgeoning punk and power pop scenes of the late 70s that would go on to reshape the world of rock and roll. Jack Lee's vision was an influence to countless bands and artists in the subsequent years, and his musical legacy continues to reverberate through the years, demonstrating his lasting impact on rock and roll history and his status as a true pioneer of punk rock and power pop. Paul Collins said, Of all the people he has met in his long career playing music, this guy, Jack Lee, holds the number one spot in his life. They went to hell and back together, and Jack shared all his incredible wealth of knowledge about music with him. Paul said he was more than proud to be by his side through thick and thin, and for him, there will never be a guy quite like Jack Lee. 
And there will never be another guy like Jack Lee since he set the bar for what many who come after him aspire to be. As author Chris Morris, who also happens to write an amazing article where I got most of my information, and I will have it posted on our website for you to read, said, Jack Lee was a true pioneer of American power pop. His contributions to music left of the dial will never be forgotten. And he's right. Jack Lee and his brand of music will never be forgotten. You know, American power pop is one of the greatest and most important branches on the great big old rock and roll family tree. Power pop is rock and roll for that matter, and just like rock and roll, it is here to stay, and it will never die. Just like the trailblazers, ones like Jack Lee, who cut out paths on the many roads that all future rock and rollers will follow. Rest in peace, Jack Lee. And you know we all have many roads to follow. another episode of rock and roll history Woo! squeezing this one in at the last minute of june i'm still on par baby gonna go 12 for 12 uh have a great fourth of july everyone uh be safe don't blow your fingers off and remember to rock and roll experiencing a little uh, you know a whole you know bouquet of emotions involving you know freedom but you know